Good morning, afternoon or night, depending on when you are listening to this. This is the Wild Gaming Show, a show that concentrates on mental health issues that uh, affect the BAME community. Today I am here with Oxford graduate and author of the book After Oxford, Mr. Daniel Stone. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, yeah, as you say, just recording this in, in the evening <laughs> on a rainy day. But other than that, uh, I'm feeling okay, thank you. Fantastic, fantastic. So I want to ask you about, I mean, I always try to speak about things that affect uh, people's mental states. So I want to ask you about how you have been um, coping uh, with the whole, you know, the whole lockdown situation. How has that affected you? Work wise and things like that. Yeah, it's been a really kind of interesting um, and challenging time, really. Um, I think I was quite fortunate in that I bought a house with my older sister towards the end of last year. So it meant that by February of this year, we, we had settled in um, to the kind of nicer working and living environment. So we've kind of got a study area. We've got separate spaces to eat and relax, and as well as kind of sleeping spaces and bedrooms. Um, so, so it's meant that we've had like a much better living environment than otherwise would have been the case. And I think for me, I think that's important. I think if you are kind of forced to kind of stay within a kind of relatively small area to be able to kind of have uh, different areas, I think has been really important for us. Um, and then, and then I think. I think on top of that as well, I think for me personally, I think the importance of just having routine within my days. Uh, I think naturally I'm somebody who doesn't like to have too much uh, free time. So, so even when it comes to weekends, um, if I'm kind of watched a program or two, then I'll suddenly be thinking about, you know, other more productive ways to kind of use, use my day. Um, so, so, I think it's, so I think kind of having that sense of knowing my kind of mind and being aware of things that I find helpful. Um, I was then able to try to kind of set myself routines just to kind of keep productive. So it could be that by the end of the day, I can say that I've accomplished a particular task or maybe by the end of the week or the weekend. So I think having small goals, um, whether it was in the case of a day or a week or a few weeks, I think really helps to kind of get through the, the time. And then before I do it, I was in like a routine of knowing kind of where my body wanted me to wake up and when I needed to sleep and when I needed to to be a bit more productive okay so all right so you mentioned like routine yeah so what is a an average day for Mr. Stone I mean how like what what is I mean okay so let's start with your your job title I guess um what is it that you 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 do Yes, so I'm a project manager at the University of Birmingham and my uh, projects focus on uh, initiatives that are around helping the university to improve the impact that they're having within Birmingham as a city, the wider region uh, and also the world. So it's kind of those outward focused projects which seem to answer the question of how universities have an impact. Um, so, so I kind of have three main projects. Uh, one is the building that the University of Birmingham has bought right in the centre of, of the city. Because I think for, for those of your, your listeners who, who know Birmingham as a city, the university is around 15 or 20 minutes away from, from the very centre of Birmingham. 
the Sosode Bora building uh, with, with the aim of using that as, as a hub to connect the university with things happening in the city. So we're going to have teaching there and exhibitions with a whole range of different events and activities. Um, and then I'm also working on a number of kind of data-driven projects uh, which are around us kind of quantifying through kind of metrics the impact that, that the university is having on, on the region. Um, so, so, so I think, so in terms of like a, a typical day, um, I'd say that I, so earlier on uh, during lockdown, I think I was setting my alarm relatively early and then trying to have like a, a jog <laughs> before work and, and kind of that was my routine. Uh, but I think after a few weeks, I realised actually, I think my, my body was telling me to, to rest a bit more. Um, so, so now I set my alarm. I think I tend to set my alarm for seven o'clock, and most days my body actually naturally wakes me up a bit before seven, um, and then I'll yeah get get out of work. Um, I mean, get get out of bed, have breakfast, get ready, and then be, and then start work at eight o'clock um, at, at the latest, and, and then work through uh, normally until about uh, five-ish. Um, and then I say in my evenings, then I think are a combination of. Uh, doing things that help me to, to relax so that I might be reading um, watching TV series um, I think cooking actually I've found to be quite therapeutic as a, as a task um, although I'm not always keen to do it depending on, on how long my, my working day has been um, but I think just trying to find actually things that yeah, relax me in, in the evening so even things like med- meditation I find, I find it really helpful um, and kind of being, being mindful of the different forms of content that I watch at different times. So as I normally before bed, I like to read books that maybe kind of put my mind in more of a place of rest or kind of quiet thinking as opposed to being too excited. Um, and I think I also got, got into the habit of before bed, just making sure that I don't check my phone maybe like an hour or so before I'm, I'm intending to go to bed, just so I mentally have time to wind down and, and switch off as well. So, so I think it's kind of been a process, I think, of ex, 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 experimenting, so kind of figuring out what things are working and like proving to be effective, and then changing my, my routine when it doesn't seem to be uh, working for me. Okay, so, all right, so you've said it, so I've got to ask you now. What are you reading? What are you watching? Uh, what are you <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna answer that question, but I'm gonna warn you because I, I also I also want to hear, hear your answers as well. <laughs> so I'll give you some warning. Um, yeah, so in terms of books, um, so I've, re- I've recently finished um, Malcolm X's autobiography, um, which again was a fantastic book. I think I'd read it when I was a lot a lot younger, and then hadn't read it for for years. Um, but but that was a really yeah, it's a really fascinating story to kind of see. It's almost like it fits about three or four different l- lifetimes within within one life. <laughs> so it kind of starts off within kind of uh, the, the kind of southern part of, of the United States of America, uh, moves up to Boston and becomes a street hustler, um, and then ends up kind of having some time in prison, where he, he then finds um, the, the, the nation of Islam and kind of has this whole worldview um, around the concept of this idea of, of, of a white man being the, the devil and then kind of later down the road they kind of converts to, to kind of more traditional Islam and they get and again kind of has that sense of there being 
a brotherhood amongst kind of people of, of faith who kind of don't see colour but who really just see each other as being more similar than, than different. Um, so it was really interesting, I think, just kind of seeing how much his thoughts changed throughout his, his lifetime. Um, actually, the, the Malcolm X, or, or actually, he had this Malcolm Little, he was actually when he was younger. The Malcolm Little was very different to the Malcolm X he became. Oh, yes. And oh, again, yeah. the kind of Malcolm X he was then continued to, to evolve as well. So I think it's really that's fascinating just seeing the evolution in, in one person's life. Yeah, there's a um, film. Uh, it was about, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he, he was rolling with Malcolm X at the time mm. when Malcolm X was a. Uh, was like a you know a tree hustler sort of a pimp sort of player. Um, I can't remember the name of the film, but it's there's a film. I think I think uh, for some reason I'm thinking of what's the guy's name? He plays um, Idiot Amin. Oh yeah, Forrest uh, Whitaker. Yeah, I'm thinking of Forrest Whitaker as it I'll have to I'll have to look it up, but um I don't know have you have you heard of um One Night in Miami? No no no, I'm not here. So that's a very I mean I went to watch it at Bristol Old Vic and it's a play, okay. and it's a very very uh, insightful and interesting play and it's um it's Muhammad Ali, uh, Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, and Jim Brown. And it's after, so they're all in this hotel room. It's after uh, Malcolm, not, sorry, not Malcolm X, uh, Muhammad Ali has just won the heavyweight title. So he's like 22, he's young. He's still known as um, Cassius Clay at this time, you know. Um, but it's a very interesting play because it's like these four characters and it's an insight into how they were amongst each other. Yeah. And, um, you know, the sort of impact that Ali um, was receiving from Malcolm X, actually, um, is very interesting because when you think about Ali, you think of this powerful leader-type figure, whereas he's the, he's the young one. He's like the boy in the room with men. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, very <coughs> it's a very interesting um, concept. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's, I mean, it's a real, it's a real, real situation that happened. They were all in the room together and chilling, and you know, there's a picture of um, Malcolm X looking out the window. You know that famous picture? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's you know from I think he's got a gun in his hand and he's looking out the window. But yeah, it's um from that as well. So yeah. So all right. So you're reading you you read the, the autobiography of Malcolm X. What are you watching? Yeah, so I'll mention a few things because I think it kind of uh, illustrates, I think, the point I was making around having different sorts of shows for different parts of, of the, the day. Um, so, so I'd say in the morning, um, I tend to begin my day um, while I'm eating my cereal <laughs> by, by watching NBA highlights. Uh, so the NBA playoffs are just about to begin. Um, so I'll make sure that I kind of tune in and watch the highlights from the previous uh evening or, or the early hours of the morning um, if I missed it um, and then throughout the day I'll, I'll tend to watch uh, Modern Family um, around lunchtime so, so that's a comedy just something light to, to kind of give me a bit, bit of a break in between work <laughs> while I'm eating lunch 
Um, and then in the early evening, I tend to watch. Um, there's a series on Netflix called Explained, uh, which basically works for a number of both kind of historical and contemporary um, issues. So there are things like Bitcoin and weed and <laughs> all sorts of really interesting topics. So it basically explains in, in about 20 minutes kind of what the core of some of the arguments are around the particular issues. So I think I like to, yeah, kind of watch that in the early evening maybe. And, and, then, and then later on in the evening, I've been watching uh, Money Heist <laughs> with my older sister. Um, uh, so it's a really kind of gripping uh I've heard of you. Based in based in Spain, um, yeah. So 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 kind of different things I think for different times. Is it Spain or Mexico? I thought it was Mexico. No, yeah, Spain, Spain. Um, oh. Yeah, so, so I, I won't give give any spoilers <laughs> to the listeners. Um, but, it's, but it's a really kind of fascinating kind of show how they yeah go about kind of building their particular plots and just some of the into relationships between the different characters I think is is really interesting as well. Ooh. Alright, okay. So let's get to the No no you, you can't skip. I wanna ask you ask I'm gonna put that question back to you now. <laughs> no, no, but okay okay just before the cooking though, what are you cooking? Oh cooking, cooking. <laughs> yeah. Um so again it varies. So so the thing is I'm actually allergic to fish and seafood. So that like limits my options uh, in terms right. of yeah. In so terms wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, I have to ask. Right, so you're allergic to seafood. Yeah. Your your Jamaican heritage. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. are you telling me? No, no. I need to. I need to just hold on. I need to brace myself. <laughs> are you telling me you can't have ackee and saltfish? Yo. Like for for me, aki and saltfish becomes aki and fried egg. <laughs> oh. I know you you, you you definitely feel my pain in it. <laughs> wow. So have you always been allergic to seafood, or is it something that you developed as you grew? Yeah, so, so I think when I was younger, I always used to tell my parents that that uh, that I didn't like fish, and I think they kind of thought I was being fussy. So, so they used to basically beat me well I'm going to say beat me but they used to kind of force me to yeah. to eat it and then I think one day I then kind of burst out in kind of having like bumps and mm. bumps and rashes and then, and then they realised oh maybe it's actually an allergy so rather than him being fussy it could actually be, be an allergy so then I had the test and it, and it did actually prove that I was allergic and even now I think if I eat something and, then, and there's a bit of fish in it or it's been cooked in fish oils or something I always kind of have a reaction to it um, so it's yeah I've been told that I'm missing out well, whenever people are like uh, eating their prawns or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as you say the ackee and saltfish but um, well, it's, it's part of life I suppose yeah. um, <laughs> I've got a close friend of mine actually and he's um, he's allergic to fish and he can't really be around it oh wow uh, yeah so he's uh, he's allergic and he's Jamaican heritage as well yeah I, I mean yeah I mean I'm just, Thankfully for me, it's not too bad. I mean, I think if my if people kind of cook fish around me, and, and if it's those fish that have like really strong smells, then then it'll kind of it will start to affect me a bit. Um, but but most of the time, I can be around it without it kind of having uh, too much of, of an impact. Um, but yeah, I think actually, I think I think my grandma actually has a fish allergy as well. So I think it's always a bit of question about whether I <laughs> whether I want to be unfortunate once to get it in our family. 
but yeah, yeah. So, so, so in terms of cooking, so, so I think my uh, meals tend to vary mainly around, yeah, kind of like either chicken or steak or <laughs> beef kind of dishes. Um, I mean, I'm trying to eat too much red, red, <laughs> red meat at the moment. But it's one of the things where I think as long as it's uh, seasoned well, and I, th- and I think with, with any cooking, I think the main thing it needs is time. So just like leave it on the on the stove, just slow cooking, allowing things to just take its time. I think it, it tends to always come out come out good. Well, um, you can't just you can't just say chicken though, because I mean, <laughs> you see, there's different types of chicken, and then there's different, <laughs> there's different um, pieces of the chicken, you know. So when you say chicken, it's like okay, is it brown stew? Is it jerk? Is it fried? Is it roasted? Like you know, I mean, like, well, what's yeah. So, so I, say, I say mainly brown stew. Okay. I think wool would be my chicken of choice. Just the kind of thing is that thing where you, yeah, as I was saying, you kind of allow it to take its time, and it kind of retains its flavour and juices, um, and probably also maybe from like a health perspective as well, it's not, you're not adding too much oil as well. So, so I think probably, yeah, brown stew is probably the one that I cook the the most. Um, but then maybe if I'm having something, but well, I feel like something a bit different, then it might be. Um, yeah, kind of fried chicken or, or something else. Um, although to be fair, I do like a good roast as well. Like on a Sunday, um, and I think yeah, we we have in the past few weeks, especially since lockdown has eased, we kind of have been having family members around and kind of cooking like a proper roast with like Yorkshire puddings and <laughs> and roast potatoes and, and all of that kind of stuff. And that's been really tasty. Um, so I think I think like a Sunday roast that we always remind me of. Like family and spending time and kind of yeah having a good meal on, on a Sunday, um, so I think it is always a nice yeah time where we get the opportunity to really cook for each other and sit down and eat and talk. Um, so yeah, it's good, man. It's good. Nice. Okay. Okay. All right. Since you are yes, all day, then the world is waiting, man. <laughs> no, um, so in terms of books, um, just well, just kind of started your book actually so um after after oxford getting in fitting in standing out by daniel stone yeah so that's something i'm I'm getting that's all started to to get into um i I predominantly read i predominantly read the bible to be honest with you so that's my sort of go-to book um i'm very like impatient with books so I love to um, I love to write as well, so I probably write more than I read. So. Um, uh, and what sorts of things do you write? Uh, drama, comedy, that sort of thing. Um, but I get very like impatient with books, so a book has to grip me um, early. Mm. It has to grip me early. That's just that's just. Um, how I am otherwise what I start doing what I realize I start doing is uh, I'm reading it but I'm not reading it properly I'm just reading the words I'm not really taking in what's what's really going on you know Um, in terms of what I'm watching I don't really watch much Um, Good Girls is is, the new season of Good Girls is back so I guess that started watching that Um, I get recommendations for all sorts of things but yeah, I think um, probably Good Girls is the is this show that um, I'm watching at the moment. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, it's a Netflix show. Yeah, it's a Netflix show. Um, it's called Dark Side of the Moon. Free woman that it's it's such a yeah it's a woman that put themselves in a bad situation and they're trying to get out of it and it just gets deeper and deeper. And deeper. Um, yeah, no, no, no spoilers, man. Yeah, 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 exactly. But it's um, I didn't think I would, I didn't think I would have interest in the show at all, actually. Um, the only reason I started watching it, I was just babysitting one time and I, I like, you know, the, the child was sleeping and I was like, it came up on my Netflix, I thought, you know what, this week is popular, let me just give it a try. And then I kind of just got hooked. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and in terms of food, <laughs> funny enough, <laughs> um, I've actually just decided to um, cut down on a lot of meats um, and just focus on fish. <laughs> so um yeah i've done like a big fish shop so i've got like in my freezer right now i've got like uh haddock i've got kipper i've got faster fish i've got salmon i've just got a lot of fish and that's basically fish and veg right yeah, now yeah. i to be low low on the carbs and just fish and veg Nah, that's yeah, yeah cause, cause I know my uh, sis, sister I think has been trying to kind of yeah kind of be a bit more vegetarian and even kind of has at times been been vegan as well. Um, and I think she kind of said how yeah just a range of benefits of trying to have that as a more of a consistent um, lifestyle and cutting yeah. down meat. Um, so yeah. so yeah, man. I think yeah, it's, um, if you're gonna be. If you're going to be vegan, that's what I'll say. I've got um, Rastafarian uh, family. So um, my cousins, my uncle, my, my dad's brother is Rastafarian and his children, etc. Um, and what I will say is that if you're going to be vegan, you've got to know how to cook, man. You've got to know how to cook. You've got to know how to season things right. You've got to trust me, man. Like... I, he, my uncle and my auntie, they can throw down. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> a lot of people are like, vegan food, man. But trust me, you get, if they cook for you, you, you're going to yeah, like yeah. it. You know what I mean? But you've got to know how to cook. Like, that's my rule. That's my rule. <laughs> so, like, you can't just go straight into it and be like, okay, I'm a vegan. you got to think to yourself, like, can I actually season though? Like, yeah, yeah. Can I do veg this particular way? And, you know, rice, am I good at doing rice and peas? And all that sort of stuff. Because so. it's true, isn't it? Because the veg has to carry the whole dish, in it? It's not just yeah. a side dish anymore. Like, it's got to be like, the main... Exactly. You know, it's your flavour, everything. Exactly. So, yeah, it's but then easy. again, I mean, I... Funny enough, as you said that you, you know you have aki with a lot one out of selfish. I did that once. I cooked up some aki, just using you know, peppers, onions, tomatoes. I mean, just the aki on its own, and it was still good. Mm. You know, it's still decent. So <coughs> it can work. All right. So like, let's 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 go into the book a little bit, right? So I want to dive in, but without too much spoilers. But I want you to take me on a little journey of the book. So. I want to get back to when you first decided that you wanted to write this book. What what triggered it? Hmm. Yeah, interesting question. Um, so as I say, it's probably been something that, that was coming for a number of years. Um, I think the first thing was 
I think it's always something, something that's been within my own mind. I think from a young age, I was always somebody who loved uh, reading. I think a lot of the people who inspired me um, and who still inspire me were people who I uh, read about and who whose stories really kind of spoke to me, um, even though they might have been born in a different country or a different time. So I, think I, I always enjoyed, I think, reading and kind of thinking about, you know, how to put together words. Um, so I think that was probably one big influence. Um, and then, of course, the the kind of focal point of the book, um, or at least the pivot, is, is around me kind of getting to the University of Oxford. Um, and, and so I think there was, throughout my life, or people who always wanted to kind of find out more about my experience of studying there, and also my journey of kind of getting into Oxford. Um, but we never really felt like the right point at that time to put to kind of put pen pen to paper. But but it was something that I was kind of conscious of maybe doing at one point. Um, so, so I think you'll kind of see throughout my book that at the start of each chapter, I kind of put, put a quote um, from a book that I read. And, and so for, for a number of years, whenever I was reading a book, um, and if there was a particular quote that stood out at me, I'd write it down in like a notepad with a view to, to then one day once I was beginning my own book and then have to be able to reference those quotes. So, so it's something I'd always kind of been playing around in my mind and something that I might want to do. Um, but I think the time I think felt right because I'd kind of gone through a, a kind of moment of personal tra- tragedy. Um, I lost my, my mum after uh, I think a five year battle with, with cancer. Um, and so I think in the kind of midst of that grief and kind of coming to terms with, with loss, um, it just felt like, like the right time, I think, to reflect on life, to reflect on the childhood um, that I'd had and, and all that my parents had put within us as kids. Um, and then to kind of go through that journey of thinking about getting to Oxford, but then also life afterwards. And the kind of final chapter does really focus on on those last few years of kind of being with my mum and, and that whole period of time. So, so, so I think it was kind of felt like, like the right time to reflect, to be thankful, um, but then also just to think about uh, the person who, who I'd become as well. <clears throat> when, you, um, when you write a book like this, um, you know, obviously the, the aim is, I mean, book like this in my opinion this is a, a book to inspire would I be correct in saying that <laughs> I'd say yeah I'd say to inspire but also to be honest and open as well um, because because I think so I so think you do have to be cautious around sometimes around messages of inspiration so so I think there is that kind of because I think that kind of rags to riches tale I think is is something that has been used throughout film and storytelling um, but I think within that I think you also have to be honest about you know some of the obstacles that you have to overcome and also the fact that there are problems still inherent in, in our system so just because I made it to Oxford it doesn't mean that there aren't still inequalities and things that we need to address um, so, so I think it's yeah definitely designed to inspire but also to be realistic about some of the challenges that we still face. Okay, talking about challenges, uh, when you first went to Oxford, what was the percentage of uh, being students? Uh, you know, 
Oh, so yes. So I think in terms of, so it wouldn't have been high. <laughs> I, I don't know the exact percentage. So so in terms of fame, um, yeah, there doesn't norm. Well, they have also sorts of statistics that include international or home students. I know within kind of black UK students, it wasn't more than like one and a half percent of students. Um, and yeah, so 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 there wasn't that representation that you would expect uh, at all. Really. Uh, what about the, what about the teachers? Well, the mentors, the, the tutors. What about them? Was there any staff? Um, yeah, I, I don't know the, the percentage, but I don't recall ever having a black or BAME. Actually, no, I, I recall having actually one BAME uh, maths and statistics teacher. Um, but but it was quite an international place, so I think a lot of our tutors, uh, while being kind of called Caucasian, had come from you know other countries, um, parts of Europe and America and so on. Um, so, so I think there was probably from quite quite on just a sense of the of difference. I think especially kind of coming from somewhere like in the city Birmingham, which is a real kind of diverse mix of people from all sorts of sorts of different different backgrounds. Uh, it was quite obvious that there wasn't the same or anywhere near the same level of diversity. Okay, so what about when we were in? Okay, so let's <clears throat> go back to primary school, yeah. Uh, primary school and secondary school. What was it? Like, was that diverse at all? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I kind of grew up in a place called Hansworth um, in Birmingham, um, and Hansworth in itself is a really kind of diverse area. I think it's one of those areas that when people first moved from Jamaica in the fifties and sixties, they tended to kind of settle in this particular part of Birmingham, and, and then and there was, and then there was something called a white flight, <laughs> which is where as more black people and people of colour started to move into the area, then yeah, all of the white inhabitants then kind of moved out into other parts of the uh, city. So, so then bit by bit, Hansworth then became transformed um, to then kind of having West Indian families, coming from India, Pakistan, and then in more recent times, places like Bangladesh and Poland and so on. Um, would, I be, would I be right in saying that, because um, I've heard this said before, would I be right in saying that Hansworth is like the... Brixton, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, virgin in Birmingham. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so I'd say, yeah, that's that's correct. So he's very much the kind of Brixton equivalent. So, as you say, you can go down to your market and get your bun and hard bread and <laughs> everything else um, that, that, that you would kind of expect within Hansworth um, was, was kind of how it was in, in those days. And so, and so my, so I then was, so my parents were born in, in Hansworth, um, and then I was then born in, in Hansworth as well. Uh, and I went to the primary school that was just at the very top of, of our road. Um, so, so the primary school reflected the area around it. Um, so it's very much a whole mix of people from, from all of these countries. And my secondary school was the same. So say in my secondary school, the majority of students there were, of, of Caribbean or Indian heritage, um, with the kind of the yes, matching of people from other backgrounds as well. Okay, and what about uh, college? Yeah, so, so so I say that at the same school. So so I, I went kind of from so my school is called Hampton Hall, um, just a normal state um, school, but they also had had a sick form. So okay. I stayed at uh, at the, at that sixth form um, oh, throughout my my years. So, 
mentally, how did that affect you going from an environment where you saw people that, uh, you know, looked like you or an environment where a lot of representation was about and now it's like you're the sort of token black guy in not only are you in a, uh, a different, um, you know, university, you're in a different city as well. So how does that, how does that affect you mentally? Yes, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, the first thing to acknowledge is that we we're all very different. I think as individuals, um, I think I always love those uh, like personality tests. I mean, I always take take them with like a pinch of salt, um, but but I think they can be quite helpful to understand how you as an individual respond differently to like different environments. So, so my personality test is INTJ, which is introverted. Um, I don't know why, but that's what actually. <laughs> I think it's because uh, it's sensing and then it needs something else. Um, but then the, the two strongest characteristics I have are thinking and judgment. Right. Um, and those are so. So with the other characteristics, so kind of like bits of me that was one part, bits of me that was the other. But with those two things, thinking and judgment, I was. Pretty much, I wouldn't say 100, percent but it's pretty much almost there on, on, those, on those two elements of things. Um, so, so I think what that means when I encounter new situations is that if I can kind of think through why the situation is as it is, and then make a judgment as to how best to respond in that situation, then, then I tend to be okay. Um, so, so the fact, so the fact that I kind of went to Oxford, um, pretty much expecting it to be as I found, so I didn't expect to meet many people who looked like me but then my judgment was that okay given this situation that I'm in what is what is the best response for me to have and I think the first response was not to put too much pressure on myself to be something that I'm not so 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 I so there was actually one other black guy um, in my year group um, and I think at, at times I think he did struggle with we kind of had to respond to the fact that he was in such a minority. So, so I remember at one point, kind of him deciding, for example, to kind of grow uh, cane rolls and to almost not not because he wanted to, but almost to kind of have that uh, almost hyper black version of, of himself. Um, and that was how he responded to it. Whereas my thing was always to kind of be quietly self confident in the fact that. If I was just myself, then it would, it would be okay, um, and that people might need time to kind of get to to know me. And likewise, I'd get to, need time to get to know them. And there might be a lot of people, and there might be some people who we just don't click, and we just wouldn't get on. And I think I was fine with that as a as an outcome. I think for me, I was always confident that if I kind of treated people with the respect, um, then I'd be able to make friends. I might not be friends with everyone, but I'd be able to make friends. Uh, and so I think that kind of sense of perspective, I think, really helps because um, it just meant that I didn't put myself under too much pressure. Uh, and then I think after that, I then went about trying to find um, different anchors to kind of keep me rooted um, during my time at university. So I kind of had my friends from, from college, I had the Afro Caribbean Society. 
um, which I, who again I was aware of before I went to university. So kind of found the uh, within the first week of arriving at Oxford <laughs> because I knew there'd be like an, an important support group. Um, I had like I was played football a lot, and that kind of kept me in a good mental state. Um, I had the Christian Union as well, which from like a spiritual and mental perspective helped help to kind of keep calm. And I think especially in that first term, I remember you know, always spending Sunday evenings like in, in a church service to just kind of help to put my mind in like a calm state before the week began again. So, so I think you've got to have like a number of different levers or anchors that you kind of hold on to that help you to remain calm and to, and to be in a good um, state, state of mind. That's interesting. I, grew, I mean, I I went to the secondary school I went to was very very diverse, um, probably the most diverse secondary school in Bristol at the time. So, um, and even my college, there was, there was a lot of diversity in my college, not in, in not particularly in the subject I studied, but in general, in the college there was a lot of uh, diversity. So, it's only like my my experience of being the sort of token has been more later on when it comes to like work, mm. you know, like jobs and things like that. But in the educational field, I've not really experienced that. You know? Yeah. yeah. You know, so um, it's quite interesting to hear because I mean, I don't, I it's, it's, I always think about it, like, how would I deal with it? I actually don't know. You know, so when you talk about that personality and things like that, like I don't know how I would deal with. Being in that environment, so it's interesting to hear you you talk about that. Um, so, so, so I suppose what so 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 what, what have you found your responses have been? Because you said that you've counted it within the kind of working world. So, how, how have you found yourself? I've always been able to. I, I find that I'm able to adapt. I'm able to adapt to things. Um, I am. I am me. I think I am always myself. But I. I just. I, I'm very aware of the environments that I'm in, um, and it's little, little, little things that I think, you know, like even like down to like, okay, probably example is that my friend, I saw him one time, and um, so in certain jobs, you know, you have dress down days, like on a Friday, so, um, and I see him, and I said to him, how come you're all like still like, everyone else is like, um, he was on his lunch break. So it's Friday, and you know, you're the only one still in a shirt and stuff. And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, man, because like, listen, like they're they're okay because they're white; they can wear what they want. But me, like, if I come in wearing jeans and you know, and a t-shirt or something, I automatically look ghetto or aggressive, you know. And that was like that was like his mindset. So he was like, "I just gotta wear this all the time, whether I like it or not, because you know, he was trying to get promotions and things like that." So. You know, um, little things like you know, um, even the way you speak and stuff like that. But I've always, I've always, pretty much just been me, and um, I'm a very respectful person anyway. So, you know, there have there have been situations in jobs where I've noticed certain little things that have triggered me, and um, sometimes I've addressed them, and sometimes I haven't. But you know. I, I, my age now, I'm more likely to address it when I was younger, possibly not. So, yeah, it's, it, it's 
Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I think that's quite interesting. Like, I thought just a point on actually when you talk about being like me or being yourself, because actually, as as people, we're really kind of com- 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 complex. So we've got all different sides of ourselves. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, definitely, I think there is that sense where. Yeah, you can be yourself, but I think you're conscious of, you know, within this particular environment, you should emphasize more of this side of your personality versus this side. Absolutely, yeah. No, because I mean, like, just growing up, for example, me being on the street with my friends, being in the park growing up, I'm speaking differently to when I'm at home in my Mm. mother's presence. You know what I mean? When I'm at Sunday school at church, I was speaking differently to when I was at school. Yeah. You know, um, just just little things like that. So the, the the type of banter that I have with my friends now and the way I would speak is different to how, you know, how I would speak at work. Mm. So it's just little things like that, you know. But like you said, you know, you take parts of your personality and, okay, you express it more in this environment and you express it less in Um, so let's just get back into the book. So, when you first arrived at uh, Oxford, uh, and I know I've asked you this uh, previously in, a, in an interview that we had, but what was your initial goal? <laughs> yeah, I think my initial goal was survival, <laughs> just to make it through that initial but we're both surviving but also adapting so so for example so within that kind of first term we're obviously adapting to a whole new environment in terms of being outside of Birmingham being in a new city being in a new cultural environment but also uh, the kind of work expectations as well were very different to A-level um, so we kind of had two essays a week uh, to do uh, and so and so a lot of that first term was just trying to it's almost like kind of being on, on a treadmill when you kind of start kind of without running and then you're getting faster and faster. Except that in this case in Oxford, like you, it's like you kind of jump on a treadmill when it's already at top speed and you, you got to try and figure out how to survive and keep, keep going. Uh, but then after a certain amount of time, you do begin to adjust to the speed and you start running and before you know it, you're doing things that you didn't think you'd be able to do. So, so I think a lot of that first time, I think was me adjusting to the speed of what Oxford was like from like a, a workload uh, perspective uh, and so my goal was to yeah was to be able to kind of yeah adapt to life in Oxford but then also once I'd adapted to be able to then um, think about how I could uh, use Oxford to do things that I was interested in um, so whether that was on things to do with access which is around helping um, other young people to kind of get into Oxford um, so I I think within the first term, work was involved within the um, Oxford Access Scheme uh, called Target Schools. Um, so, so I think I think after that period of adapting, it was then me thinking about how I could grow and develop and use my time to do stuff that I was passionate about. So you're talking about like targeting and things like that. But I want to come into this issue because I'm confused about this. So. I want to know if you know a bit more about that than me. So, I've been seeing all these things on Instagram regarding A levels, and uh, spoken to my friend about it who works in, you know, two of my friends work in the school, 
and they basically told me that yeah it's like an elitist uh, elitist set of people that will be going to Ohio universities and other people who would have been going to universities who got higher predicted grades have been like put down their grades have been dropped down or something I mean what's What's the actual situation? Do you know like, what's actually Yeah, yeah. So, I think it's... So, we know that the, the kind of coronavirus has kind of created a whole load of kind of different issues and problems. So, so, so within the education sector, of course, you'd expect that kind of when people get to the end of their time um, at school, maybe doing A-levels or BTECs or, or whatever, that they will then have an assessment. Um, because kind of school was stopped... Um, when would it have been February or March of this year then, then actually that whole assessment period was lost but then the intention of the government was still to try to to allow those people to be allocated um, places in in, 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 in like universities and, and so I think the, the question that I think the government was trying to answer was given that there have, haven't been exams this year how do you allocate spaces in a way that is fair um, so then what they did is they tried to combine um, kind of predicted grades that teachers had given for each individual student uh, alongside the relative performance of that particular school um, or student. Um, so, so, so they're looking at like the predicted grades for that individual, but they're not. But then they're also saying, you know, what has the what is the expected performance of students from that particular school? Um, with that particular area uh, and so, so the challenge with looking at averages in that way is that if you're from if you're somebody who has come from like an underperforming school or, or a school that's in the worst area that on average hasn't done as well in the past then, then, then you then have a much lower baseline um, so, so then the the algorithm that the program then uses to churn out these results um, has then predicted or kind of graded down a lot of people who have come from poorer schools um, because historically they didn't do as well as, as more affluent schools. Um, so, so it's a really kind of appalling way of doing it really because I think I, I can imagine somebody you know from a statistics background um, plugging these figures into Excel or whatever program they're using and then giving them a very kind of clear answer. But the problem is that you're forgetting that these aren't just like random robots who you're allocating to things to. These are like individuals, and these are people who are really putting their hopes on trying to get into in, into university. Um, and so, and so for me, it's just an incredibly uh, unwise situation to to kind of allocate not only kind of grades but actually people's futures in that particular way. Um, so, so, so I'm glad to hear that the government now has gone back on that decision and is just using predicted grades um, to then allocate places. Uh, I think, to be honest, there wasn't... So after, after the assessment period had been cancelled, there wasn't ever going to be a straightforward way of allocating places. Um, but I think this at least gives people the benefit of the doubt and rather than penalising people from poor backgrounds, it kind of gives... It kind of gives them an opportunity to to fulfill their potential. Yeah, because I heard that <clears throat> um, is the same thing was going to be happening with the GCSEs. I don't know. I mean, okay, so if we were to go back, um, looking at your background, like, I mean, would that have got you in? 
does that mean you wouldn't have got into uni then? Yeah, so I'm so, yeah, so fairly certain that I wouldn't have got into Oxford. So my so my A-level grades, I got in the end four A's at A-level. Um, so, so what my... And, and actually, it would be interesting to see whether my... I think by the end of my ASs, because at the end of my AS levels, I did have four A's. So I, I suspect that my teachers would have predicted me four A's um, for the end of A-level. But then what the algorithm would have done, it would, it would have looked at the history of my school and it would have said, yeah. actually, no one's ever got four A's. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, um, so that's what I mean. So you've put... So there's, there's, there's some young person out there, um, very probably in the exact same situation as you, who has put the work in hmm. and would be getting, you know, the four A's, but that the history of the school, they're not going to get that result. Yeah, correct. So, 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 they were, so they would have looked across the history of the school, they would have looked at uh, various trends in terms of how individuals have performed as well, and they probably would have thought, eh, the likelihood of them getting four A's, probably not. <laughs> let's, like, let's, let's kind of put that down a, a grade or two, or even three. Uh, so yes, yeah, so so actually, so it depends on kind of how how many grades are afforded. So maybe if I if I'd been given three A's and a B, it would have been enough. Um, but because Oxford, I, I don't know actually for this round of applications, Oxford have have been more lenient and they've actually accepted people regardless of what the algorithm said. Um, so actually, I might have got in just because of Oxford's grace as opposed to of the underlying system. Um, but, but, but in theory, I probably would not have been given four A's. That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm, I'm just really like, you know, well, now that you've really explained it, um, I kind of thought that's what it was anyway, but I wasn't 100% sure. But it is really a, a, a depressing thing, actually, because, you know, there's so much young people out there with, you know, potential to go to where they need to be, really. And yeah. unfortunately, they're not. And, it, and it's just, the, and it's just the, the kind of unfairness that I think a lot of people can't really, because so so I know the universities and every university kind of well apart from Oxford and Cambridge, uh, tend to go into kind of clearing, and that's because there maybe have been students who were predicted to get certain grades and have taken the test and then didn't get it, and then so so they then have to think about other universities. And normally that's quite a difficult conversation, but the students can accept that they take that they, they took the test and, and they didn't get the marks that they expected. But, but but when you take that out of their hands and you don't give them the chance to be tested and but you just tell them that a computer told them that, that this is the mark they get and that as a consequence they won't be able to go to a university or a university of their choice, then I think people really have a sense of and rightly so, a real sense of injustice. Um, so yeah, it's really been a shocking kind of policy decision, um, but I'm glad that it looks like it's going to be, be overturned. Mm. I've got a few questions to ask you regarding the educational system, right? Um, my brother was talking to me about this actually, um, and he was saying that he feels that the, the, the schools need to teach more life skills. Uh, what do you think about that? In terms of, like, for example, uh, I don't know if they, maybe they're doing it now. I don't know, but you know, like things like credit management, understanding, you know, things like that. Like, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think I think um, yeah, I think some some schools do, but but I don't think it's a formal part of the curriculum. Um, I, I mean, the challenge is that the curriculum itself is <laughs> is quite full with a whole range of different kind of standards or subjects. So so it tends to be that thing like that tend to be pushed into uh, PSHE or to things that are outside of like formal um, kind of studies. Well, but I think but I think it's definitely kind of worthwhile because I think when you think about uh, actually the number of people who get into financial difficulty um, yeah. or who don't understand basic things to do with um, yeah, kind of interest rates and credit and debt and all sorts of different things. I mean, you would hope within a subject like maths that some of that would, would, would be covered because people always have that criticism on maths that actually you can't apply a lot of what you're, you're studying so you learn about Pythagoras and all sorts of different things but how many times do you actually need to use that <laughs> in your yeah. daily life um, so I think actually a subject like maths where there's a clear link between financial literacy and important math skills so like learning about interest rates and compound interest is stuff that you should do in maths anyway so why not bundle that within like uh, a course on financial literacy so, so to be honest I wouldn't be against having either a, a maths paper or a maths module that's based around financial literacy as something for people to learn I think that should be that would be something that both teaches math skills and that gives people important life lessons as well um, but then beyond that I think there is the big question of actually thinking about what the purpose of education is so actually whether it is to kind of give people those life skills for once they've finished or is it just to kind of yeah kind of then be something to pass on to the next day because that's often the thing people um kind of talk about is actually you wouldn't do something like that in maths because maths is just about providing a foundation so that once you've done it to GCSE you can do it at A level and then do it at degree level and so on and so on but I think actually I think if we did rethink education as being around also helping people um, to develop those key life skills and I think it, it would probably be a positive move. Yeah no, I, I agree I agree with what you're saying um, because I mean even my friend I remember he was telling me about um, this is a, a while back a few years ago and he was like oh well guess what because his, his partner at the time he was well, ex-partner now but she went at a bank and um, he told me, oh, guess what? Like, they've got a new campaign thing where she's going to be going into schools and running, like, workshops and seminars and things about uh, credit management and uh, about you know, understanding um, credit scores and things like that and, you know, how to build your credit, how to boost it, you know, what contributes to you having a low credit score, all these sort of things. And I was like, oh, that's... You know, that's really good. Like, because I've been saying, I feel like you know, schools need that. And then he turned around and said, "Here's the catch, though. It's in private schools only." <laughs> so, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, well, there you go. Same old, same old, really. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a real shame. I think to kind of have to, to have the expertise available but then for it not to be accessed and just because that person is from a particular school um i think i think it's it's a real shame um so yeah hopefully we can start pushing for for like reform in some of those areas yeah no because i remember like this is is gonna sound really strange but i remember watching do you you, you ever see the the cartoon show hey arnold yeah yeah 
Alright, so I think it was Cristiano Ronaldo, didn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And he ends up having to be a tutor to uh, one of the bullies, like one of, I can't remember his name, but one of the school kids who's a bully and he's failing at maths, right? Mm. And Arnold is trying to teach him all these different types of ways and he can't get it through to him, he just can't get it. And anyway, he sees this kid who like owes him money or something. And he, you know, draws up the kid and the kid gives him like, say the kid gives him like, I don't know, 20. But then he said, then he turns around and says to the kid like, no, you actually owe me X amount because of the interest. Blah, blah, blah. Like he instantly gets it when it's in that format. So then it's like, so Arnold kind of figures, oh, okay, so if I put this into a, a everyday life scenario for this kid, he'll get it. And that's what he starts doing. So he starts teaching them and saying, oh, okay, imagine you see Billy and, uh, you know, you take 10 quid off Billy um, and then, you know, you you see, I don't know, Terry and you take his shoes and you sell his shoes for X amount of money. Like, But then the boy starts getting it because he's a bully. Like, he starts understanding it. And, and it's, and it's, it's funny because... Um, I think that sometimes when you put things in scenarios, people get it. It's just the way... So sometimes it's not a case of the fact that they don't get the subject. It's just the way in which it's, it's being revealed to them. Um, yeah, so yeah. Sometimes it's, it's the, they just have to have it in a, in a different way for them to understand. Yeah, and that's all, that's all true. I think especially for like a subject like maths where people... A lot of people don't automatically get it and understand the, the logic and um, yeah, the structure of it. And actually, if you can ground it in real life examples, then I think it would just be that they can really kind of capture it a lot, a lot easier. Yeah, I noticed that when you, instead of saying words, but if you if you use money, people tend to get it. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> people tend to get it a lot quicker when it's uh, said in a, in a monetary format. You know, when they hear it like that, you say, okay, you know. You know, if you're gonna go buy this particular item, and it's something that they they would want to buy, you know, and then mm. you say it's got fifty percent off. How much is it now? Whereas if you say, okay, what is fifty percent off this particular number? And it's like their interest is not there. Yeah. yeah. But when yeah. you placed it in a in a in a way in which their interest is there, then they they're actually trying to think of it, you know, in, in a way. So what else do you think um, in the educational system? What else do you probably mention like life skills? But is there anything else that you think that is lacking? Yeah, so, so, so it's really interesting. Um, and the reason why I'm kind of pausing is because I think there is a question of how much do you put on schools to try and do something about and how much oh, do I you... See, I see yeah, and how much do you try to build families and communities to be more resilient for? So, so for that part, I know there's a whole range of different prog- prog- problems that we, um, not, not problems, but issues and things that are happening in society nowadays. Um, but then the question is actually, is it best to put those on teachers and schools or, or is it for others to, to work towards? Um, so, so some of the examples, you mentioned financial literacy um, as being the important one. Um, I think there's some yeah, really interesting things uh, happening um, and important things around kind of people's sense of, of well-being. Um, 
so sustaining in mental health and, and I, I'm a school school governor actually um, at, at my former secondary school and I think across the board um, we're seeing kind of cases of youth mental health um, kind of really becoming on the agenda um, and, and the pressures of social media and having that around you 24 7 um, and I think it's kind of helping people just to yeah, kind of reflect on the sorts of people who they are and want to become. I think there's a whole kind of piece of work there, which I think used to be done through kind of churches and religious communities. And as kind of societies have become more secular, again, there is a really kind of a character around who's taking up that particular role. It's actually just developing people with character morals and, and everything else so, so I think there's a lot of different issues um, and challenges that I think a lot of our young people are facing um, and yeah schools are equipped to kind of deal with, with some of those things and they'll kind of have to because they've got young people around them 24 7 uh, but I think there also has to be a, a certain degree of input from families and communities as well um, if we're going to reverse the tide you mentioned meditating earlier um, and I believe that's something that a few schools have tried to incorporate I think it's starting in primary schools actually more but uh, trying to incorporate sort of morning meditation for the, for the pupils mm. um, to affect their mental health and things like that <clears throat> yeah I think that mental health is something that definitely needs to be addressed in, in schools and it's interesting because, um, sorry, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 31. You're 31. So, uh, social media wasn't about when you were in secondary school, was it? I mean... Yeah, no. Yeah, not... It was like MySpace. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. So, my, but MySpace came out like... I mean, I'm 32, and I think MySpace came out when I was in college. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, MySpace, but... When I think about today and I think, wow, like social media and, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and so much things get revealed and it, like the impact that it has on students, you know, you, you get things about suicide now and, you know, people getting exposed to this, exposed to that. It must really be almost a scary time to be, to be in education, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree because I think I think for me that there's a sense of like not being able to escape. So, so yeah. I remember kind of yeah, as you say, kind of growing up. Sometimes you kind of get people who might fall out and talk about having a fight, you know, Friday after school or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or, or or you know, you know, you kind of fell out with someone or someone called you a, a name or something, and you're kind of thinking about how you might resolve it. But, but there was always a pause so sometimes if you're out on a Friday you know you'd have the whole weekend and then by the weekend things would cool down and things yeah. would be done and nobody would be contact with you over the weekend whereas now it's just like constant but it's not that cut so everything must be just feel so much more intense because you're constantly got you're constantly just exposed to yeah to things happening around you um, and, and as much as humans can be loving and supportive and kind so sometimes they can also be incredibly hateful and, and vicious um so to not be able to shut off from that yeah must be just 
incredibly difficult for Balaba young people. Mm. Do you do any form of like uh, mentoring at all? Or do you have any aspirations to do that? Um, yes, so, so not presently. So I think I used to a few years ago. Um, I think I, I am always open to it um, because I think I do recognise the importance of being able to yeah, just kind of pass on your experience and perspective. Um, and I'd say, although I'm not a formal, a kind of formal mentor, there are people who I've known for a number of years who are maybe a few years younger than me, maybe five to ten years younger, who, who if they come to mind, I'll message them and kind of have a conversation or weekly they'll contact me um, to kind of have a, a conversation about something to do with careers or education. So I think while I'm always keen to have those conversations, um, I don't currently have a formal um, kind of mentor. Okay. Okay, so you're, like I said, like, I want to ask you this. Do you ever get, okay, I had a, I had a teacher on, on, my, on my first podcast, actually, funny enough, and it was about education. And she is a black deputy head secondary school. And, you know, when people meet her, they don't assume that she is what she is because, you know, she's, oh, she's got to be maybe a teaching assistant or, you know, uh, maybe a parent of a student or something like that. But they never expect her to be, you know, that level. Do you ever come across uh, situations like that where people don't, expect you to be the project manager or expect you to um, have you know gone done what you've done you have replaced yeah. that yeah I'd say, I'd say I, I get that all the time I mean that's probably in terms of incidents linked to my race and then know there's a term microaggressions and so on um, but I'd say for me that's the most common thing where people don't expect um, and it, probably also because being of Caribbean heritage and being called uh, Daniel Stone, often when I first start communicating with people, it'll be by by email, and so actually they expect Daniel Stone probably to be a a white gentleman. <laughs> um, so often, actually, they don't expect Daniel Stone to be me. And I've had to this to several occasions where in, in my workplace, like I'm being with somebody for the first time, who agreed to meet maybe like a coffee um, shop or cafe and, and I'm the only person by, by the door and they've kind of walked past me assuming that it must be someone else who sat down in the coffee shop um, I've also had a case where I've been organising events um, often in like hotels or other venues and people have assumed that I'm working in the hotel um, as opposed to being there to, to kind of host the event so to speak um, and yeah, they've also kind of had people who kind of went, I, I think when I was still a student, I kind of get people who, after hearing that, what when I said I studied in Oxford, like they kind of assumed that I meant Oxford Books University and not the University of Oxford. Um, so, so you do kind of get all sorts of different, yeah, kind of prejudices that are kind of born out in your life. Um, and I think the thing I would say is, you know, from a psychological perspective, we know that as humans, we are designed to make kind of snap judgments. Um, but the thing that we have to be aware of is actually when our kind of um, 
stereotypes become prejudices and, and then lead to this, this discriminatory actions. So I think in all of those cases, I think you would have hoped that the person in question would have spoken to themselves and said, although my initial reaction may have been that because this person is a young black male, he's working in the hotel, what other cues are there around me for me to actually realise that, you know, this is, this is the case. Um, so, 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 so I think we do have to, yeah, so, so I think because we live in a society where yeah, people who look like me haven't traditionally occupied positions of leadership, I think I'm aware that there will be a period where that needs to, to change um, and it won't change overnight because of the things that have been entrenched in society. Um, so, so I think we just have to, uh, for, for us as the individuals who are the forerunners in some of these situations, I think we just have to treat it with as much um, understanding as we can and not allow it to discourage us, but continue to push forward in, in whatever field we're going. Alright, I'm going to close with this and I wanted to, before I even say the question I'm about to answer um, I just want to make it clear that I mean absolutely no disrespect with what I'm about to say okay <laughs> um, do you feel like okay the fact that you've gone to Oxford okay you're a black person you're from Hamsworth you've gone to Oxford should we be celebrating the fact that you're a black person going to Oxford or should we be looking to normalise the fact that you've gone to Oxford should we be looking at it like okay he's gone to Oxford, that's great we expect that he's able to do that or I kind of, I, I personally kind of feel like sometimes we look down on our own selves like I heard that okay uh, this guy called Daniel Stone's gone to Oxford that's great and obviously anybody able to get into Oxford is um, deserving of the accolades you know what I mean because it's a hard place to get into so I do celebrate that but I kind of feel like I don't want to celebrate it because you're because you're black and you got in I want to celebrate the fact that you, you worked hard, you got in, and you being black isn't it just shouldn't be holding you back. Like you're mm. able to do you understand where I'm coming from? I might I might not be yeah. wording it in, in the right way, but what what's your views on that? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, question. Um and something that I kind of wrestled with when it came to writing the book and how best to position it. Um because, because I think you're right, I think there is a thing where the long-term aim definitely is for this to be normalised and for it to be our expectation of our black young people to be able to succeed in whatever field that they choose to get into. Um, and, and I think you're, you're definitely right in that even if we get to that um, utopia, then actually, like, as a community, you are still expect us to celebrate people like young people who succeed and get into places like Oxford or do whatever it is that's at the, the top of their particular field um, so, so I think success I think is worth celebrating um, but, but I think so I think with the, what I think 
that can become dangerous if we then don't recognize yeah the fruits of that success um or actually what went into making that success happen so often i think some of the dangers of success is actually the stories are mistold and people don't understand what led or, or what some of the the, the level of sacrifice sometimes required to kind of get success yeah. so, so people kind of celebrate the big moment of success but they don't recognize everything that has gone into it um so, so i think if you're honest about that journey then i think that's a wise and way to do it as opposed to just yeah asking people to kind of blow, blow a trumpet without exploring some, some of the difficulties and challenges um, I definitely, I think the whole thing with, with, with our book, as I mentioned earlier, is to be honest about some of those systematic trends that we still face, um, and to be honest about the level of work and the mindset and sacrifice I needed just to get there. And I think, in many ways, that's kind of what, what I hope the book shows, is that given my background, I had to go above and beyond kind of what you'd expect anybody to have to do to get to Oxford. Uh, I talk about having, I talk about doing uh, my further maths A-level and having to travel an hour and a half to the other side of Birmingham just to study uh, maths um, and I do that every two weeks and then in between I'd be at, at home with, with my textbook kind of doing this really difficult work. Um, so, so I think it's just it's trying to show you well, some of the challenges that are still present um, but yeah, but I think, but so, so I think you're completely right. The aim would be for it to be normalised. But I think, to, but before that moment, I think it is important for there to be role models who people can can look yeah. towards. Um, because, because I've mentioned with, with that leadership question, there are many people who look like us who come from our backgrounds who do some of these things. Um, so actually, having role models who can make it seem possible, I think, will then help us to get from. The place where we are today to that place of it being um, normalised. Absolutely. I mean, when I when I look at your book and I see you on the front cover, um, and I see obviously the title of the book as well, um, I think you know representation. Representation is very important. And if I'm a young, maybe 13, 14 year old boy looking at this, I'm like, okay, you know this. I, I need to, but I need to see more of it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, so in the same way that you have, um, and that's why I like the title as well, um, because you're not just talking about being in Oxford, but you're talking about uh, once, okay, once you've completed your course, then what as well? So I think that's that's an important message as well. But if, in, in the same way that young people will look at, like, you know, uh, Ian Wright, Thierry Henry, Raheem Sterling. You know, a lot of like Premier League football players and inspired to be that because they see that it's, it's possible. Um, but obviously there's a lot of hard work that goes into it too, but that it never seems to like phase them, you know, and, and, and stop them from trying. So I think that we have to have that, they have to have that same mindset in, in, in education as well. And so there's no reason, you know, why I can't inspire to, to get to Oxford. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and study what I want to at the highest level, you know. Yeah, man, definitely. But I think I think in general, um, I don't want to say we've got a long way to go because that sounds negative. So I don't want to say that. But I appreciate 
your book. I appreciate uh, what you're doing now for the community. Um, and let, let me just let me just quickly talk just before we we go. Can we just quickly talk about when you were at Oxford? Because you mentioned in the other interview that we had all the sort of um, things you were involved in. You were involved in quite a lot of things. Um, uh, so it seemed like you were really trying to make some sort of uh, impact uh, whilst at Oxford. Um, can you just talk about that real briefly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think the impact thing is interesting because I've always been a believer that actually you should begin where where you are um, if you want to make a change. Um, but partly because actually like the environment you're in is important to try and influence that for the better also because you'll learn quite a lot about yourself and about how you bring about change if you kind of start small. Um, so, so, so I think for me, it was kind of thinking about, okay, within the context of Oxford, what do I have the power to influence and what do I care about kind of giving my time and energy towards? Um, so I think the kind of three main things I was involved in. So I mentioned earlier the Access Project uh, Target Schools, so, so I was coordinating that, so having students who wanted to get into Oxford uh, by organising uh, shadowing programmes um, and then each college um, has a so they call it the, the JCR which is the junior common room but, but that essentially stands for the undergraduate student body uh, and so each kind of JCR elects a president to kind of attend meetings on behalf of uh, that particular college uh, so I was elected to be the JCR president for St Peter's College uh, so kind of had that position during my second year at university and so would kind of represent students on issues to do with rents and uh, kind of getting fridges in their rooms and so on. <laughs> um, and, then, and then I was also involved in a um, campaign for racial awareness and equality. So I chaired that campaign um, and as part of that campaign we did something called the 100 Voices campaign uh, which is trying to find uh, the experiences of 100 uh, BAME students at, at Oxford. Uh, so we recorded those and then put those into a uh, report with recommendations for, for the uh, university to implement. Um, so yeah, so, so I think it was that sense of actually me kind of knowing myself, uh, observing what I was seeing in the environment around me and then thinking about how I could use uh, my skills and resources to kind of bring about a positive change. Okay, when, when you said um, 100 voices, what's, I mean, that obviously is a while ago, but, you know, how far did that go? What what happened, What came of that? Did anything come of that, do you know? Did, did they implement um, any change? So it, yeah, so, so I, think, I think they, so we had, I remember us organising on the back of that, organising a conference uh, where we kind of invited a number of different academics to come and speak and, and give their thoughts on things. Um, I think that the difficulty with Oxford is that because Oxford as a university is actually split up into 38 colleges, um, so actually there isn't that sense of there being one person who speaks for, for everyone, like you've got to kind of work <laughs> independently with a range of different colleges. Um, so, so I think some did come on board with different things that they agreed to, um, but there wasn't anything that was uniformly agreed. Um, and I think one of the challenges with student campaigns is that you're only there for a short period of time and then you move on. And the good thing with the 100 Voices was that actually, I think several years later, um, another group of students heard about it um, and almost picked up, picked up um, where we left off. Um, so they then did like a final report and we were able to try to hold the university to account on, on, on 
other things as well. Um, so, so, so I think there will be a continuous push for change, and I think definitely I think on the on the back of Black Lives Matter, um, I think I'm expecting there to be a a real push. And I think the kind of change needs across the, the spectrum, so both within student admissions, uh, within kind of staff members and representation among staff and academics um, and especially within the kind of curriculum and thinking about what's taught and ensuring that that's as diverse um, as it can be. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast today. No um, problem. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Uh, thank you for your book. Um, thank you for what you are doing now in, in your career and uh, wishing you all the best for the future I'm looking here forward to hearing from you more in, in, the, you know, in the future brilliant uh, thanks for Neil um, and thanks for the chats to uh, contribute to really interesting uh, and important um, conversation as well no problem thanks for coming so until next time this has been the Well Baming Show Good morning, good afternoon, or good night.